standard issue for all women. Happy International Women's Day. To celebrate the social, economic, cultural and political achievements of women, we're running a series of interviews with some kick-ass broads. Aisha Hazarika talks to us about politics, about comedy and how the two can go hand in hand. Laura Bates chats about her new book, Misogynation, and offers some truly startling facts and figures about everyday sexism. Historian and Newnham Fellow Dr Jill Sutherland explains the important role Millicent Fawcett played in the suffrage movement. And finally, England rugby captain Sarah Hunter talks sport in general and rugby in particular. We're releasing all four of these interviews on and around International Women's Day. So after you've finished whichever one you're listening to right now, do have a shufty for the other delicious slices of feminist goodness. Here's author and activist Laura Bates with some jaw-dropping stats and facts on everyday sexism and more. Also, worth mentioning, her book, the brilliantly titled Misogynation, is available to buy now. Hi, we're here with Laura Bates, author, founder of Everyday Sexism, um, as one of our International Women's Day interviews. Thanks for having us, Laura. Thanks so much for coming. It's been quite the year for women. (laughs) Yes, that's an understatement, isn't it? So we're here to talk about your latest book, or one of the things we're here to talk about, your latest book, Misogynation. Thank you. It's a collection, well, you tell us what it is rather than me tell you what it is, because you know what it is. Um, It's a collection of Guardian columns that I've written over the last five years or so, um, brought together with quite a bit of new material as well, um, with a view to trying to join the dots between what we often see as very different, isolated incidents, as we're so often told, and say, actually, no, we have to see them as part of a spectrum, we have to see the bigger picture. I think that's that. That's the, been the real value of everyday sexism. Uh, there's a there's a brilliant example when you talk about the in the chapter that's about women's bodies. When you talk about don't eat that, mm-hmm. which was the the one thing that came to you, and then when you retweeted it, you were inundated with people who had also been told that. Yeah, I mean that just seems to be par for the course. No matter what it is, no matter how isolating an experience it feels for the woman who's had it, as soon as you speak out, as soon as we say on Twitter or anywhere else, somebody has shared an experience with us of having been, it might be followed, it might be masturbated at in the street, the kind of thing that I think we'd like to think, my gosh, that's an isolated incident, or that's shocking, we will get thousands of women writing saying oh yeah that's happened to me more than once that's happened to my friends and it's funny because as well as those messages from women saying I'm nodding along reading these I've experienced all these things we'll get tweets from men saying what oh my god yeah so I think there's a double purpose there partly it's for us not to feel alone to recognize actually it wasn't just me and it is awful and I can stand up to it and other people are standing up too but also to shine a light on it for men in particular and people who aren't aware of the problem and say look how bad this really is I recently replied to a tweet that said um Mm. that said what's the strangest thing you've ever seen on the tube and I said uh somebody having a wank and five people in my limited circle of people that that follow me said that they'd also seen that and I thought even what I know about the world I think I thought up until that point that I probably had seen the one or two occasions that that's (laughs) ever happened and yet it happens clearly all the time time. which is really shocking it is interesting the thing about food as well the idea that who in saying because just to explain it to anyone who hasn't, who hasn't read it, the idea was that people say, are you really going to eat that? It's going to ruin your complexion or your figure or aren't you getting married? Are you going to fit in that dress? The idea of who actually 
owns women's bodies. Absolutely. And the sheer number of women who got in touch to say that either strangers in public spaces or colleagues or anybody really had said to them, you know, oh, stay away from that chocolate cookie. Oh, are you really going to eat that? Oh, you look hungry, don't you? And of course, it's a minor issue relative to some of what we deal with. But I think it's very telling because, as you say, what it really shows is that there is this sense of confident ownership of women's bodies, that that they aren't the ones that get to control them and that it is completely normal for strangers to discuss them and police them. And I think that's a perfect example, really. It connects. So that isn't an issue that happens in isolation. It's also part of the idea that men have the right to rate women's bodies, to let them know what they think of them very openly and loudly and often aggressively in the street in a public space Um, or that a woman in the workplace might experience seeing her male colleagues rating out of 10 female candidates coming in for interview for attractiveness and of course it's part of the same continuum that sees men feel the right to take ownership of women's bodies in more violent ways as well yeah and and the other effect of of uh, sort of policing women's bodies in that way is um, you also say that the most shocking online or the most shocking statistic you'd ever discovered online was that 80% of girls in the US aged 10, 10 or younger, had been on a diet. Yeah, dieted to lose weight. I think that's the saddest I've ever come across. And if you look at stats from the UK, you find that a quarter of seven-year-olds have dieted to lose weight and that five is the age they first start to worry about their bodies. I have to say that I, I remember being about six years old and thinking, oh, you've got like chubbier legs than everyone else I remember vividly having that thought which is really sad it's really sad that like someone that young would have that well there's this there's this story about me when I was younger in which my mum and my aunt loved to tell about me which was that I was I can't remember it so whatever age that is four five and that they were discussing going on a diet and I said that I wanted to go and um, (laughs) they said I couldn't and I completely lost my shit and started crying and lying on the floor and checking a temper tantrum and my dad came in and I said they're going on a diet and they won't take me and he said what's a diet and I said I don't know (laughs) but I suppose the fact is they were talking about it in front of me without thinking that I was clearly soaking it up and listening and taking it in Um, so yeah we do talk about that stuff way too much in front of children don't we Well, it's also so much kind of baked into the world around them, you know. I mean, we see thousands of images of women's bodies all around us every day on a billboard, flicking through a magazine, on the side of a tube, even, you know, on the side of your sandwich packet in boots, for goodness sake, you see a very thin, white, large-breasted, long-legged model in a bikini. And it does send a message that this is what women are supposed to look like, which does have a trickle-down effect, I think, even for very young children. This kind of brings us to, to, to another question I had was that you, you do say that you, you think that education is the answer mm. to how to deal with a lot of things, but yeah. in particular how to how to approach a sort of the, let's call it culture of sexual abuse yeah. that we live in. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Absolutely. I think when you work in this area, it's so hard to point to any kind of single solution that would make a big difference. You know, these are really difficult, entrenched issues. And so it's very exciting, I think, when you discover something that actually could make a difference and incredibly frustrating to realise it isn't in place. So I think this is, again, about the continuum. It's not just about the fact that girls are experiencing sexual violence in schools. We know that a third, almost a third of 16 to 18-year-old girls experiences unwanted sexual touching at school. So we've got a third of teenage girls sexually assaulted at school. 
We know that 5,500 sexual offences, including 600 rapes, were reported to police from inside UK schools over a three-year period, which works out to around a rape per school day being reported. So it's partly about that and saying we've got to tackle it there because that is where it's happening. But it's also about looking ahead and realising that 85,000 women are raped and 400,000 sexually assaulted in the UK every year and thinking, well, where do we start to tackle that? And I think if we don't have a conversation with kids about it at school, then they're absorbing all these ideas and attitudes about women that kind of contribute to the problem. And there isn't anything to offset that, to offset things like online porn and the really quite misogynistic and abusive idea of what sex is that they might be getting from online porn. And it's not a silver bullet, but it could make a massive difference. And so to realise that there was nothing on the curriculum was quite shocking when I started looking into this a few years ago and realised the only things that school had to teach was literally just the biology of sex. It wasn't compulsory for kids to learn anything, even simply about sexual consent or healthy relationships. So I think I believe really passionately that it is about going into schools and that's the biggest part of my job now is working with young people in schools and just starting really simple conversations with them about gender stereotypes um, and about relationships with with young people of all genders. And it really makes you realise just how confused they are. They'll say things like rape is a compliment really or it's not rape if she enjoys it. You'll hear teenage girls who describe something that is sexual assault or rape and say, well, it's not rape, is it? It's my boyfriend. You have to have sex with your boyfriend. They think a rapist is a stranger in a dark alleyway who preys on a girl who's stupid enough to wear a short skirt. That's the level that the kind of comprehension is at. So we've got to start talking about it. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) There's a huge thing about consent, isn't there? And and we don't... I'm going to talk now. Uh, We don't... We just don't talk about consent at all and I think that young boys and young girls don't understand that non-consensual sex is rape. I do think there are like subtle nuances like the you know she was drunk or or whatever. You remember that video the the little cartoon that the police did about the tea Yeah. which sort of put it a lot better than I am currently doing so but um but yeah I think that we just don't there's no conversation around that and I think a lot of young boys probably don't even know that what they're doing is necessarily wrong. I, I think equally as well, when you look at some kind of famous cases, yeah. um, uh, I mean, largely uh, the more the more famous ones have, have been in America, but the way that, that judges or lawyers mm. have talked about mm. um, consent, um, the, what's he, Brock, Brock Turner, Turner, that case mm. where he was constantly sort of referred to as you know like a bright promising swimmer as if that was in any way relevant Mm. to 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 what had happened and the idea that the girl would be able to just get over it and 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 in fact in some way he was portrayed as a victim and that that's just one example that's quite common when you when you look at so it's sort of structural change the whole way isn't it it's the whole way down we all have to be looking differently at consent what sort of schools do you go into? What sort of things do you do in schools? I go into all different schools up and down the country. I go to state schools, private schools, academies, faith schools, mixed schools, single sex schools. Um, and, and it really varies. We do workshops, talks, conversations. Really, I try and give young people a space to discuss these things because the shocking thing is that they just don't have an outlet to even talk about it elsewhere. And it's when you get them talking instead of preaching at them that the really interesting stuff starts to come out and you start to really get a sense of 
what it is that they're concerned about and confused about. And it's ironic, I think, because in one way, they have the greatest information at their fingertips of any generation ever. And in another way, they're often really lost and confused and just crying out for some basic information. And I think we have this really unique moment, actually, at the moment that's never happened before and will never happen again, where we're living with a generation of non-digital natives who are parenting and educating a generation of digital natives. And there's a real gulf in understanding just what that means in terms of what they're bombarded by. You know, it's not only the sort of hypersexualization of women in the media and music videos and on social media, it's online abuse and it's sexting and it's unwanted dick pics and it's pressure to send nude pictures of yourself and it's Instagram filters and body image pressure. And then online porn and so you get girls who think that they have to look like the women in online porn that they have to shave absolutely everywhere um, you see this absolute rocketing rates of girls inquiring about labiaplasty um, because they think that there's something wrong with their labia and you hear them saying things like I'm 13 years old and I'm really scared to have sex because a boy showed me a, f- a video on his mobile phone at school and I never realised before that when you have sex the woman has to be hurting and crying and, and that kind of porn is really widespread and easily accessible. It's not something niche that you go looking for. It's the kind of first link you might click on the internet. I was in a school recently where they'd had a rape case involving a 14-year-old boy and a teacher had said to him, why didn't you stop when she was crying? And he'd look back at her and said, because it's normal for girls to cry during sex. And that's not unusual to hear comments like crying is part of foreplay. Um, And so just as you said, I think it is, it's confusing for boys as well to know what's expected of them and what's normal. I kind of want to stop this interview and go and ring my brother and ask him what my nephew's looking at online because it it is so difficult. I mean, he's he's 11, he's got a little iPad. Actually, they are quite careful about what he looks at online. But nonetheless, you know, even in things that have, that are age appropriate to him, there are some pervasive views that kind of start to, to be laid at that at that stage mm. especially of what's a girl's thing and what's a boy's thing and and and, and and it kind of encourages the separation of 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 children into a male and female group in which case mm. you know you start to see girls boys start to see girls as other yes and not 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 human you say that don't you women are people too yeah <laughs> i think a lot of it plays into the sort of male entitlement and and yeah the way we raise young boys the way that boys are sort of pedestaled in households and the kind of like you know i have an older brother and he's great and wonderful and whatever but i you know there are times where i think you entitled prick like oh. <laughs> i'm not clearing up after you it's weird that you kind of still sort of think that i might you know but it's how he's been raised and I think there's a there's a kind of thing about about male entitlement and how they're raised that makes them feel that that's kind of like sweeping across the board almost yeah well that's another interesting point you 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 raise in your book um I think you've got all the interesting points in your book but the, the, the point about how much of sort of the day-to-day labour of the, the household and the family is still carried by women. Yes, and it starts really young. Just as you say, we bring boys up to think of it as completely normal, and girls as well. In fact, one of the articles in there was about this study that found that 
parents pay girls less pocket money than boys, that they make girls do a lot more chores, that they're less likely to give girls the money as well. They're more likely to hold on to girls' pocket money and buy things for them. So some of these messages, the idea that housework is women's work, the idea that men manage the money and women have it managed for them, they start from such a young age. Someone sent me a picture on Twitter the other day of two baby grows for literally for newborns side by side and the boys one is blue and it says I'm super and it's a kind of superhero motif and the girls one is purple and it says I hate my thighs oh it just starts so young and then there too and we get an email from a parent saying I was at a play group and my two-year-old toddler picked up a stethoscope and someone swooped in and said oh you're gonna be a nurse and she said you know that's a great career but what would they have said if it had been a boy yeah it's just so little drip drips the kind of thing where if you pointed it out people would say oh stop making a fuss that's not a big deal And of course it isn't on its own, but then they're seven or eight and they go to the toy store and they reach out for an exciting chemistry set and suddenly they realise that the sign says boys' toys. Or they go to the supermarket age 10 and the magazines are split into women's and men's and under men's they've got National Geographic and New Scientist and The Economist. And these little messages are just telling them everywhere, drip, 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 this isn't for you, this is for boys. Girls don't do that, girls aren't good at that. And then you look a little bit later on and realise that at half of all state schools there's no girls studying physics A-level at all and you start to join the dots and think what impact might those all of those little things have had on getting to this point or to the later point where only one-tenth of our engineers are female and so yeah. on. And they're doing ninety five percent of the housework on top. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, I can remember one of the one of the biggest rows I ever had with my dad was when I had done an incredibly long day, a long week at work. I think I'd done more than a hundred hours, and um, uh, I was moaning about how you know it was awful. And he said, "I used to work those sort of hours. You know, I don't know what you're moaning about." And I said, "Yeah, but you used to get up and open a drawer, and there were clean pants in it. <laughs> you know." <laughs> You used to come home when the dinner was put in front of you. That's that's the way that sort of that their generation was. My mum did everything and worked, and that was that was the way it was. And you would hope that sort of as it goes down the the, the generations that men are taking on more, and not just that, but more of the emotional labour, more of the yes. the actual physical parenting, um, rather than saying, "Oh, I can't go out. I've got to babysit tonight." which it staggers me when when men say that about their own children yeah parenting it's called parenting yeah (laughs) you do see you do see a lot of people saying a lot of guys saying that as well it's like i'm 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 not babysitting i'm actually just yeah we hear from a lot of men actually who find that really frustrating and then when they do take their child out there's no you know changing facilities and and they're only in the women's lose or actually men who've written in to say that they've asked for parental leave at work and have been denied it and really kind of ridiculed for asking for it and I always bring this stuff up when people say oh feminism you hate men then and you just think no this is for all of us the stories that we get from men make it so clear that the outdated idea whatever it is whatever stereotype it is whether it's the idea of women staying at home and looking after the kids and men going out and earning money or whether it's the idea that certain subjects are for girls and others are for boys and they can't cross over those boundaries they're having a negative impact on everyone it's not about fight it's not about a gender wars or battle of the sexes it would be good for everyone for feminism to succeed absolutely and if you stop saying man up to your sons you mm-hmm. are you are doing them the world of good absolutely um there's an, a piece in here it's an essay that you or, or a, a, a piece from the guardian that you wrote in 2013 when you say When it comes to online abuse, women and girls are on their own. Mm. Do you still feel that? Do you feel that that's changed any in the last four years? 
I think have we achieved everything? perhaps what has shifted a little bit is a public awareness. I think people know about online abuse now and perhaps understand it a little bit better. And so that's progress. But I think in terms of outcomes, in terms of protection or support, largely I think we are still on our own. And I say that having gone to the police with, with reams of death threats and rape threats and abuse. And, you know, not just someone saying, oh, I've just seen you on Sky News and I'd like to hold your hair as handlebars and rape you until you die but also like long emails, thousands of words long where someone fantasises in paragraphs about what weapons they'd like to disembowel you with and what order they'd use them in. And in my experience, nothing has ever happened. We haven't caught up with it. You know, it's just as illegal online as it would be in real life, but we haven't caught up with that in terms of bringing justice. But also, perhaps even more importantly, social media companies are not putting their money where their mouth is in terms of dealing with this at all. They like to talk a good game, but they also like to kind of shrug and say, oh, well, you know, it's a massive problem and freedom of speech. But there is absolutely a way to police the abuse of your users and still protect freedom of speech that doesn't involve rape threats and death threats. And we're talking about companies that have the income of a small country. If they wanted to, they could hire 30,000 new moderators tomorrow to go through this by hand and deal with it. And they just aren't really interested. And it's a real problem, I think, for the diversity of voices online, because sometimes cases do get picked up and in the spotlight. And invariably, the ones that the media choose to highlight are the cases of of privileged white women in kind of positions of power, whether they might be politicians or or women like me. And I've been really lucky to have the sort of experiences that I've had often spotlighted. And when that happens, you get an outpouring of public support and sympathy. But you also get action from social media companies in those individual cases to get the spotlight off their back. So the women who are experiencing racism and transphobia as well as sexism, who are getting the worst of the online abuse, they're not the ones whose cases get picked up. So they're not the ones that get action from social media companies. So they're most likely to have their voices silenced and driven offline. They're the very voices we most need in that online debate. So it's a real vicious circle, I think. And I suppose to a certain degree, it's a result of there not being very many women at the top in social media yes, companies. Yes, and in tech generally. I mean, when you look at some of the stuff that's going on at tech conferences, you know, women kind of walking around in bikinis demonstrating products or, you know, launching new apps. There was a story that's mentioned in the book as well about a big tech conference where the first app that they launched and made a big fanfare of was called the Tit Stare app. It was literally an app that let you point your phone at and ogle a woman's breasts using your phone. That kind of says it all, really. Wow. Yeah. Oh dear! <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it can be. It's well done, guys. Good work. Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. quite often feminists get accused of policing language. In yeah. fact, not just feminists. You know, anybody who's anybody who's ever suggesting that something is racist or or yeah. sexist or homophobic will always be told accused of policing language. Mm. You make a really interesting. Actually, this is in your afterword. You make a really interesting point about that, and that's the point about when police use the word "an isolated incident" mm. to describe um, when a woman has been attacked or raped or murdered. And I mean, clearly, and you do explain that quite often what they're trying to do is suggest this isn't the work of a serial killer. You know, we're not thinking it was the same as. But when you describe things as isolated incidents, it gives it sort of completely masks the fact that it's part of a huge culture of the way that women are treated and the way that stories like that are reported. Yes. 
exactly and we hear those phrases isolated incident one-off domestic incident and they are used to euphemize and minimize generally speaking the crimes of white men and and the systemic crimes that see two women a week killed by a current or former partner you know a quarter of all women experience domestic violence and until we join the dots we can go after individuals and we can try to get justice in individual cases but we'll never tackle the problem if we don't recognize that continuum and those connections and stop saying isolated incident yeah also as well I I think sometimes you see and I know I know why it's because they're trying to draw they're trying to draw someone into the story I mean Mm. I've worked for newspapers for years and they'll say woman killed after telling boyfriend he had a small penis just for the sake of argument so yeah. the idea is that people will go small penis I'm going to click on that but what but of course what we know is what it actually suggests is that perhaps in some way she was responsible exactly for the court mm, for him implies. behaving in the way that he has yeah I mean there was a really classic example of this um last year in a really tragic case of a man who killed his wife and daughter and the newspapers reported on it absolutely shockingly. They implied heavily that because the couple had recently split up, she was in some way bringing what had happened on herself. They differentiated between the murder of the daughter and the murder of the wife. In one particular article, they used the word understandable to describe the fact that he'd killed the wife and then said, but, you know, how shocking that he killed the daughter. I mean, it was absolutely chilling. There was another article which kind of described the guy. They went door to door with his neighbours and talked about how, you know, he did the DIY for people and very much sort of built up a picture of his character and a sympathetic portrayal of his character as if to say, well, you know, it was terribly out of character and crucially didn't mention anything about the character and the personality of his victims, of the women who died. And it does matter because it does implicitly send that message that, you know, women are a little bit asking for it, partly to blame for what happened. Men can't really control their emotions. Yeah. It, it just, just happens. Murder, that was all he did, just this one murder. Exactly. He's always been a nice guy up until that point. It's, it's really chilling. In the last couple of weeks, I think, in or certainly since um, the last mass shooting in America... I think there has been a slight perceptible, almost imperceptible, but perceptible move forward. It's a tiny step, but you know, the idea that Walmarts are changing the age of which people can buy a gun, um, people are cutting, some businesses are cutting links with the, the NRA, sort of. Do you feel that the last year for feminism has been, has created that sort of same, it's a slow step forward, but it is a step forward? I think I do, actually. If you'd asked me at the beginning of it all, I'd have been so wary because we're terrified of people saying, turning point, tipping point, watershed moment, and then using it as an excuse never to talk about it again, you know? People often are keen to brush things under the carpet by saying, brilliant, we've had that conversation now, that's fixed. And the conversation is only the beginning. And But what an exciting beginning it's been you know the millions of courageous survivors who've spoken out about their experiences not an easy thing to do that's finally put this on the map and really started forcing people to take notice to talk about it to recognize it and it's not the end of the road but it's a really crucial step forward what we need to see now I think is other people taking the baton and moving forward so we need to see the government getting involved there are specific things that the government could do that would really help things like for example section 40 of the equality 
Equality Act, which is, deals with third-party harassment, was repealed under the last government. So no longer do employers have to protect their employees from harassment from a client or a um, you know a customer. So a woman working in a bar and being sexually harassed by punters, or a woman working in a hospital being sexually harassed by a patient. At the moment, their employer doesn't have to deal with that. They're not protected. So there's really clear areas where the government could act. And then there's really important things I think that organisations and businesses should be doing around putting in place very clear, robust reporting procedures, protecting victims from a backlash when they use them, introducing unconscious bias training, having a really good look at their gender pay gap, those kinds of issues. And then there's the individual level. And I hope that the sheer number of people who've heard these stories and had their eyes open to the issue might move beyond perhaps thinking, well, I'm not part of the problem and into thinking, how can I be part of the solution? Maybe I'll say something next time. Maybe I'll speak up. Maybe when I hear those rumours swirling and previously I turned a blind eye, I'll look into it. Maybe when someone says something's happened to them, I'll support them and, and ask them if they want me to go and report with them. There are so many really little things that each of us can do that would have a ripple effect, I think. What's up next for you, Laura? Um, well, at the moment, lots of focus on workplace sexual harassment and working with um, businesses to try and really put those measures in place. Um, but also working with the government at the moment who have finally agreed that they are going to put sex and relationships education on the curriculum. So um, I've been part of the consultation process with the Department for Education for what that might look like in schools and eagerly awaiting because of course you know it's a win of course that they've agreed to do it but what really matters now is what that looks like and and what happens in the in the curriculum what happens and how it's delivered thank you so much for your time laura it's been so interesting thank you for having me it's been great international women's day seems exactly the right time to big up some charities doing excellent work for women but desperately in need of your cash should you have some to spare refuge rape crisis the Abortion Support Network, the Homeless Period, Women in Sport, the Samaritans, and, you know, just putting a few extra items, including sanitary hygiene products, in your local food bank. Up the women! Until the next time, stay frosty. Standard issue for all women.